There's no better name than your name. Lord, there's no more powerful name than your name. And in your name, Lord, we find comfort. We find strength. We find hope. We find joy. We find contentment. That God, in your name, Jesus, we find you. So God, I'm thankful that you don't hide yourself. I'm thankful that you want us to be close with you. And when I think about just the words we just sung, whatever we're facing, Lord, up, down, left, right, little or a lot, health, sickness, cold or warmth, all we have to do is speak the name of Jesus and you're there. Because you are a God that desires to lead his people. And so God, whatever we walked in with this morning, whatever we experienced this week, whatever we've got on the plate for next week, or even a thing that we don't know that's coming tomorrow, Jesus, you are king. And we're thankful. So God, be with us as we turn to your word. As we look at Hebrews this morning in your preeminence and your supremacy and Lord, may you be the God that you are, and may you be the God of the universe in our hearts. It's in your name. Amen. 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 Good morning. Welcome, 9 a.m.ers. Right? Okay, so I just want to say one thing, okay? You know, it's funny, we were talking about this earlier in the week, and we were saying, Wonder how nine names going to go, and you know, and so for me, like it's like nobody's going to show, right? Because I'm not that great of a teacher, and that's totally fine. Um, but and and then we saw the weather forecast, you know, as well, and we we're like, you know, it's probably safe to not draw any conclusions about much of anything given this weekend. But here's the conclusion I'm drawing for you guys: you guys are strong and courageous in the Lord. Yes. Amen. We braved it. Now, did you see the video last night on TV or on Twitter or the Kansas City game? Did y'all see that where the concession stand person pulled the water bottle out of the cooler? I say cooler in quotations. So it was so cold in Kansas City last night, when they pulled the water bottle out, it froze from top to bottom within like five seconds. That's how cold it was. And it's not that cold here, thankfully, but oh my gosh, it's cold. But thank you guys. You guys are strong courageous. Thank you guys for joining us at home. No shame, no judgment, I promise, but we're so glad that you guys are here. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So last week we had our joint service together with Mosaic, right? New ministry, new season. Uh, We went to 9 a.m. They'll be here in a little bit. So make sure you guys say hello as we pass by one another. Um, This past week, Equip. Anybody in the room did Equip or joined Equip first session? There's quite a few of us. That's good. I know it was a great, great first week. Uh, students, we had a full student room. I think there was like 30-something people in the in the room on the other side of the building, and it was a lot of fun. And I'll just tell you this, like teaching students what you guys went through, which I had your notes, so I know what you guys were talking about, about why, why do we trust these books? Why these 66? What about these translations? What about all the questions we have? And the students were like, in it. It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. Now, I'll say this as well. Um, uh, 
Equip, I think, does a good job of kind of setting the plate for something this week. And so um, we're going to be in Hebrews. The series is called Spiritual Covering in a Spiritless World. Because whether you're a Kansas City fan or a Miami Dolphin fan, which probably not anybody in this room, maybe so, that's fine. Um, Right? Like there's lots of things in this world that we attach ourselves to. But ultimately, because of the case of Christ, right? Like, they fall woefully short. And that's what Hebrews is talking about. It talks about the supremacy of Jesus over and over and over in three ways. And so, um, here's what we know about the book of Hebrews. This is where Equip's going to come in in just a second. So, one, uh, Hebrews was written around 60 or 70 A.D., That's what we think. Somewhere around then, we don't quite know. We think it was written before the temple was destroyed, which was in 70, around 70 AD. The author is unknown. We don't know who the author is. We have ideas, right? At some point in the history and tradition of Christianity, the east side of Christianity, this is going to sound very gangster-like, the east side of Christianity um, thought it was Paul. The West at some point decided it was Paul as well, um, but there's a great argument that can be made that it's not Paul based on how he writes in his other letters, right? Um, there's some other candidates like Barnabas or Apollos or Luke, even Priscilla, although unlikely because, again, in the original language, they use masculine, uh, uh, masculine terms, so it's probably not a woman asserting a, a masculine term or word there or participles. So that's fine. But back to the equip piece, here's what we learned this past week, and this is what our students learned as well, is there are three criteria of why we have this as the Bible, right? Number one, if it's the Old Testament, it's attached to a prophet, or if it's the New Testament, it's attached to an apostle. Well, already... We're kind of messed up because we don't know who the author is. So why is Hebrews in the Bible, right? Well, here's the other two. So those are, they are hard rules, but they're also subjective. Number two, right, is that it was widely used by Christians. And we know that Hebrews was widely used by lots of Christians. Matter of fact, we think it was written to a Jewish Christian audience. And then number three, the number three, do you remember this? Do you remember the third one? that was there, that whatever is in the Bible, it doesn't go against what else is in the Bible, right? It has to line up with what we understand the other letters of the Bible where we have authorship, and well, that's, well, that's not in, in uh, question. And so Hebrews, as we'll learn, because we're going to be in this letter for a while, hopefully till Easter, um, and we'll, we'll stay in, along in, in, in as long as we can. But the author of Hebrews, whoever this person is, which is, we know it's the Holy Spirit inspired it, right? So it's not like it's a jump. But there is wonderful understanding of Old Testament and wonderful understanding of New Testament living because of the persecution that was being faced. And so not only does Hebrews adhere to what's in the New Testament, it also adheres to wonderfully what's already in the Old Testament. So that's why it's in the Bible, even though we don't know who the author is. Isn't that fun? I think that's fun. I just love how, like, we, we're not that smart and we don't think very strategically sometimes and how God could use week one of an equip class, which I heard was really fun for the adults. It was fun for the students. And then we kick off Hebrews the following Sunday, and already we're applying what we've learned in equip from week one to the book of Hebrews. Isn't that fun? I think that's fun. But I'm also a nerd, so there you go. Um, like I said, has, the author has obvious extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. 
um, most likely Jewish because of that knowledge, by the way they're talking about it. And we know that they're writing to a Jewish Christian audience. They're writing to Jewish Christian believers. But again, we don't know where this audience is. It could be Rome. It could have been Spain. It could be in Jerusalem. But we don't know. And since we don't know who the author is, as I said a second ago, we'll see several times in this book how he or this person refers to the Holy Spirit as inspiring the Word. So I hope you have hope there. And so the question is, why are we doing a deep dive in Hebrews now? Uh, real quick, let me back up. Yesterday at Dallas International University, I got a chance to see um, the entire Old Testament written in Hebrew in a complete set on scrolls, like before this, right? And what's interesting about that is there's six known sets, complete sets of Old Testament, the Tanakh, all the Old Testament from front to back, on the planet, and this is the only collection that's viewable by public, by the public, which is kind of cool, right? Like that's, it's in Cleburne, and it just happened to be at DIU, so I would, ch- if you're like, I'd like to go see that. Well, it's at a foundation in Cleburne. We can make sure you guys get that information if you want to go see it. So we were seeing from Genesis all the way to the back, what's the last book of the Old Testament? Anybody remember? Is it Malachi? Zephaniah? Something like, whatever. It doesn't matter. I know. I say that, and you're like, this guy's horrible. I get it. Um, right? And so here's the funny thing. And so I was a little, really challenged yesterday by viewing these, and here's why. This is what I would say. And then this will lead into my next point before we start the book. Just first four verses in the book today. Um, what someone said that we were having a conversation was, because there was a couple of scrolls that were over 500 years old that were written in Morocco or Iraq. There were some of the scrolls that were... Uh, taken from Poland just before World War II and the Holocaust. And so we were looking at these scrolls and we are like, think about the people who carried these to make sure that they got to where they are today. And just their story, their lives, the pain, the suffering that they um, uh, experienced, untold amounts of just life in general. And, and we all have our things that we... That we, that, we, that we walk with, those limps, those things that don't work quite the way that we want. And, and I was thinking about my reading plan, which is a daily plan, and uh, one of the scrolls had uh, cuts in it. And so during the Holocaust in Poland, the story goes that the scroll was uh, taken by German soldiers and thrown on their bayonets, and so you could see the stab marks in the scroll. And so what was interesting is, you know, obviously that's not, you know, that level of, uh, of atrocity, at least from the Holocaust, is gone, but the scroll remains. And so the idea is the, world, the word of the Lord endures forever. And just that those people gave their lives to protect that scroll. See where, see, see where I'm going? Well, I've got a Bible daily reading plan that goes right into my email. And for convenience sake, and that's okay, right? I just read it in my email, and I just kind of scroll through it. And I rarely ever just pick up the, my Bible to read out of. And I was just struck yesterday. This is just me personally challenging myself, and maybe this is something for you. I don't know. But I was like, I should take a little more care of God's Word because, thankfully, I don't live in a place where I have to carry around a a book that's been stabbed and broken because of war. So anyway, why Hebrews now? Why a spiritual covering in a spiritless world? And I can't think of any better reason than what happens tomorrow night. We know political season, it's been political season for a while, 
but it kicks off tomorrow, right? And this is an election year where politics and government are going to be front and center. I, I have a degree in political science. I love politics. But as Christians face the danger of being more outwardly political, especially in a political season, and I'm not saying that there aren't stakes involved in our country and where we're headed. I'm not saying any of that. What's dangerous for us as believers is that we have a more political outward leaning than a theological one. Can I say that again? We, the danger is, is we have a more political outward leaning than a theological one. And while we are citizens of this country according to the grace of, the, of God, this is not our home. And we are citizens of heaven. And I would say that our citizenship in heaven and what we bring to the political conversations that are happening in this country and all the things are way more important than any party or any other thing that we would align ourselves to. So as government and presidents and elections come front and center, I think this is a great time to just consider Hebrews as it challenges those personal things that we hold most dear, because that's what the author of Hebrews talks about over and over and over again. Those personal things that we add to Jesus, they're idols. That's what they are. And so it's the sanctification of personal idol worship that I want to focus on as we go through the book. Does that make sense? Yeah, sorry, I've been talking at you. I hope that's okay. Um, Hebrews asserts over and over three things. The supremacy of Jesus, and this morning we're going to look at three pictures of how he's supreme, and it's one, it's his prophetic ministry, two, it's his kingly ministry, and three, it's his priestly ministry. And we'll see that in the first four verses, and I just want to, just a few truths, but truth number one, which ties this all together, and then we'll get into the word. If we live, if we live according to anything other than Jesus' leading and lordship of our lives. It's not just that we allow him to lead, it's allow him to be Lord, right? It's a two-part thing. Jesus, you've got to lead us, and you've got to, I've got to submit everything to the best of my ability to you, your lordship. We are worshiping a lesser God, because that's what they are. They're lesser gods. And what I often find, just personally for my own life, is I'm a tyrannical God for myself. And I am the lesser God compared to Jesus' prophetic and kingly and priestly ministry. Amen? So my hope is, as we walk away from these first four verses, is that we'll get a better picture of those three images. And that I'm thinking what God is trying to say is one of those is for us this morning. I don't know which one is for you. I have an idea which one is for me. Amen? Okay. Turn your books to, or your Bibles to Hebrews 1. You can follow along. If you've got an analog Bible, great. If you've got a digital one, that's great. I would say as we work through the book, like, let's open it up. Let's not just lean, you know, back to the bayonet and the scroll thing. But there you go, starting in verse 1. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Think about the best sunset, sunrise, moon you've ever seen and how radiant it is. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Not just God, but God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. To be honest, we could spend so much time in each of these images. Picture one, Christ's prophetic work. Verse one, long ago at many times and many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so if you know your Old Testament, like God used lots of prophets to speak his word. Before there was ever a king in Israel, God used the person from God that he raised up so that he could declare God's truth. And I love the Greek word for prophet. It's prophetes, if you, if you care about that kind of thing. And it makes me think of a machete, right? I say machete, it's prophete, it's the same thing. But isn't that exactly what a prophet does in the Old Testament? What does a machete do? It cuts. What does it do? It divides. And oftentimes, prophets... People who speak on behalf of God, maybe you have one of those in your life, I don't know, right? But oftentimes, God's prophet divides. They let everyone know where God is and where they are, which was what their role was. God does that through his word. It's prophetic. And just this idea that two functions, one, God is usually saying between the ideas of right and wrong, because that's what we see in the Old Testament. A lot is like, hey, Israel, stop doing this. You're stepping away. This is going to happen. Jerusalem's going to fall. The Babylonians are going to come. Or, hey, stop worshiping the other gods, right? That's why Hebrews, I think, is important because of the supremacy of Jesus. But then number two, it also, prophets would also tell the future of what's coming because of whatever was going on. And so just this idea that the prophete, their words, their tongue is a machete, and, and it cuts and divides in two. So let me reread verse 1 aloud in that regard as interpreting what has already happened. So long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by prophets who would tell the truth or tell the future. But then look at this in verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us or told us the truth and told us what's coming by who? His son. His son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, again, in the Old Testament, there's five major prophet books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But then there's also 12 minor prophetic books in the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and there's Malachi at the end, right? Now, why are they major and why are they minor? Is it because one is speaking more important things than the other? Actually, no, because prophets speak whatever's needed for the moment in the day, right? Sometimes it's for the future. It tells us what the future is coming, but it's also for that moment. And so the reason some of them are major is because the length of the book itself. So when you, see, when you hear major prophetic book, it's not because they're more important. It's just because they're longer, and so instead of saying, calling someone long-winded, like, you know, if you call me a major preacher after I'm done today, then I'm going to be a little aggravated because you're saying I'm long-winded, right? Instead of saying long-winded, they're just saying major. The minor books are just shorter in stature. Not ones any better. There are also other prophets like Elijah and Elisha, right? There's other prophets running around in the Old Testament. But the reason that they, um, they're, the books aren't there is because they didn't author a book. They're just in the story of the Old Testament. 
So we get this sense in verse 1 that while it is true that God speaks perfectly all the time, right? Because if we trust God's prophet, we trust that he's speaking. Just like we don't know the author of Hebrews, but we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking perfectly when this was written. And somehow he's going to navigate my craziness and speak some way that conveys truth to you guys this morning. But in the Old Testament, God required more than one human vessel to speak and communicate to him, to his people. You see that, right? That's what prophets were. Like, there was more than one. Why did God require more than one human vessel to speak? Because he's God. He could do whatever he wants, right? Well, one, I was thinking, well, humans are sinful and not perfect, right? Oftentimes, the authority of a human voice when speaking on behalf of God has more to do with the weight of the words than the speaker, you get that, right? I know we all have our favorite podcasts and whatnot and people that speak to us. What we're attaching significance to is the weight of how they speak the words, the words that are spoken, not to the person. See that, right? And before Jesus came to earth long ago, God limited his voice to these prophets, to these machetes, to these mouthpieces who were finite. There was Moses, and then Moses had to die, and Joshua took over, Right? But let me read verse 2 again. And again, we're differentiating between Jesus' prophetic ministry versus the human one. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so what, Jesus, what differentiates Jesus' voice, prophetic voice from the Old Testament prophetic voices is one that he is the chosen Son and the heir of all things in the Trinity. And because he is chosen, and because Jesus is who he is, God and man, perfect, he is the heir of all things. And Old Testament prophets were caretakers and stewards, much like you and I are, right? This is not our church. We're a part of this church, and we should steward our time in this church while we are here, just like we we're a part of God's kingdom while we're on this side of eternity. But Jesus is just the steward. He's the heir, according to verse 2. And Jesus owns it all. And he created all things. And it got me to thinking last week in Colossians 1, just again, this is Paul. And so this is why one of the arguments is that Paul might be an author of Hebrews because of this, this passage in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image. Notice the similarity here. Somebody, they actually think maybe the author of Hebrews was a scribe that just took some of Paul's writings and, and, and their conversations and adapted it into the book. But he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Hear it? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, or in the case of Hebrews, that he is supreme. And for him, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him reconciled himself all over. And I've torn my Bible, and I can't read the rest of it, because there you go. Make a peace by the blood of his cross. I did that this morning, ironically. But I say all that to say, Jesus' prophetic voice is perfect, it is infinite, and it remains forever. And so... That leads us to truth number two. 
You get this picture one of Jesus' prophetic ministry. Jesus speaks definitively on behalf of God the Father. Definitively. Like there's no ambiguity. Right? It's perfect. And it's always perfect. And there's lots of times where it doesn't feel very perfect, does it? When he challenges us. When he divides us. When he shows us where we are in relation to what he wants. Or, and, 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 and what it looks like to be a Christ follower. But Jesus speaks definitively. And so, I don't know, some of us maybe this morning need to walk away with, I need to listen to Jesus' words more in my life than I do my own. Or my friend. Or the podcast that I listen to. I don't know. But that's picture number one. Picture number one, Jesus' prophetic ministry is supreme to those prophets that spoke from old. Because who better to speak over God's creation than the one who created it? Amen? Amen. All right. Verse 3. Let's keep going. We doing okay? Okay. I'm not killing you yet or boring you to death because it's cold. I always wondered because, you know, the difference between like 10 a.m. 9 a.m. is not that big, but like energy levels are way different at 10 a.m. than they are at 9 a.m. And so I was like, this is either going to go really well or not go really well at all. But there you go. Verse 3. You were supposed to laugh at that, but I'm sorry. Thank you. I appreciate that. That was awkward. Okay. That was, a, was that a pity laugh? Is that what we call pity laughs? Wow. That's the most you've said all morning, and that's what you decide to speak to? My gosh. We've got 19 minutes. I've got to get out of here. Okay. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love that. That's just the first half. Jesus is a radiance of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And so we're moving from prophetic now to kingly. Because what does a king do, right? They reflect the radiance of the crown that they wear, right? Everybody always looks at the crown, right? They don't look at the person wearing the crown. They see the crown. Like, what's the phrase? Heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? It's this, this, this picture that the king reflects a radiance of the crown in royalty and majesty, and they uphold their kingdom or realm or country through their nature as king or queen, president or prime minister. You see that, right? But then again, just like prophets, there's differences between earthly kings or rulers versus Jesus. Earthly kings and rulers, though finite, just like prophets, can be both good or bad. And this Bible is full of, unfortunately, good kings and bad kings, good rulers and bad rulers, good leaders and bad leaders. Our world is full, unfortunately, of good leaders and bad leaders. And so what is the example of a bad king or a bad ruler? And it's this. And I really was challenged by this, too. And, 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 and just so you know, like, we're not kings or presidents or rulers in here, but we all have authority in the areas that God has given us. So don't, don't check out on this point because we're not running for president, okay? What's an example of someone who is maybe not the best ruler or king? And it's someone who leverages their power and their authority for their own gain or control at the expense of others. 
right? Is that a pretty decent summary statement for all the bad kings in the Bible, right? They leverage their position. They leverage their power. They leverage their authority. They leverage what God has placed them in. I saw that the other day. It's like anything you do good is because God placed you there, not because you brought yourself to that place. And I thought that was so good. It was so affirming, right? It's like, God, thank you so much for having me in the places that you have me in. Thank you for, for trusting me in that way. But I just this picture of a, of, a, of a bad ruler or someone who's missed the point is that they leverage all that they can leverage for their own selfish gain and control. And it got me thinking, how often do I do that? Right? In the position of my family or on the team. All right, and, and like, do I leverage things for convenience sake that I get what I want out of it? And I'm like, well, I kind of do, right? Kids, you got to go to bed at this time because I want to watch my show. I guess that's selfish, but it's also warranted, isn't it, right? I mean, but that, just this idea of some, a king is someone who leverages their power and authority for their own gain. Well, what's the other side of the coin? What's the example of a good king? And it's the exact opposite. Someone who leverages their power and authority for the good of others. See that? Bad king, selfish gain. Good king or ruler for the gain of others. They lead the way. And that's what Jesus did, right? When you think about just this picture, he was being mockingly called the king of the Jews before Pilate. And he could have asserted his authority before Pilate and fixed all of it, but he didn't, right? Because he had work to do on our behalf. Jesus is this picture of a good king and contrasted with of the earthly king. Something else about earthly kings and Jesus, earthly kings are finite. Just like Moses goes to Joshua and Joshua is no longer here, nor are there prophets, kings are also finite. Something that stood out to me at the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, um, if you remember that, you know, and they had her in the coffin and they had all the vestiges on top, right? And they had her crown and her scepter and you know, it's a big, long service in, in, in the cathedral there. And it's, before they lowered her into the ground, they referred to who, her as our sister Elizabeth, not their queen. Because upon death, she exited the office and she was lowered into the crypt, part of the family, not leader of the family or the country anymore. Any position or occupation or identity, wherever we have authority, because we all have authority given by God. Right? It just looks different for different ways for different people, and that's okay. But whatever we own, whatever position, whatever occupation, whatever identity, whatever power, whatever gifts, whatever skills, whatever finances we have, on this side of eternity, we place before Jesus and his throne on the other side. And so I say that to say, when we think about just Jesus' kingly ministry and where we lead in the areas that we lead, is that let's make sure that we don't lead in a way that we're thinking about ourselves first. And then two, we truly look at it as a stewardship of the authority and the people that he's given around us. Because this world is replete, right? If, if that's even a word, I might have just made it up. I don't know. Um, but it's filled with wrong examples of that. And again, let me just turn our attention back to the political seats we're about to enter into. I'm not commenting on this person or that party or that agenda or not. Like, I'm staying neutral in this way. They're earthly kings, and they're not perfect. And the danger, again, is that we're more outwardly political 
when our citizenship is theological, not political. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Because we know what we know and we have conviction that the Lord has given us, but yet we're supposed to walk this balancing act out of being a theological citizen first and a political one second, but I often reverse the two. Which brings us to truth number three. If the earthly kings are finite and imperfect and get the idea wrong, truth number three is Christ's kingship is affirmed by his divine, divine perfection, isn't it? Like, think about all the things that affirm Jesus, his divine perfection. He was born into a sinful world, sinless, and remains sinless, according to Hebrews, that we'll get to later. His birth affirms his kingship. As a baby, he was no less king than he is right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. His death affirms his kingship. He didn't give up the crown. Matter of fact, he held on to it in hell and then came out of the grave three days later. Amen? His resurrection affirms his kingship. His ascension affirms his kingship. And whether you and I bow our knee or confess with our tongue that Jesus is Lord, Revelation teaches us that everybody on the planet throughout time and history will, at his subsequent return, confess who he is. Jesus' kingship is affirmed by his divine perfection, birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. And so in this political season, as we enter into all the stuff and all the argument and all the stuff and how we don't see eye to eye about anything and how we divide, and I get that, and I'm not saying that's not a reality, what if we actually take into that process us asserting Jesus' kingship and lordship in our lives and lead with that as opposed to whatever political agenda we might have or want. Might that change, maybe not the system, but not, might that change our heart? Because I think that's the point. First, changing the system is also the point. Impressing forward with the truth that, that can't be denied. But it first starts here and works your way out. Amen? And so this is picture two, Jesus' kingly ministry, which leads us to the last one, picture three, Jesus' and thank goodness for this one, his priestly ministry. Prophetic, kingly, now priestly. Second half of verse three, we're almost done. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Just a little, why, why do they talk about, why does the author of Hebrews talk about angels and being awesome and Jesus being better? It's because angelic beings, those interactions were considered sacred. And so the author of Hebrews is just saying, hey, those are sacred for the Jewish believer in the room and the Jewish faith, but Jesus is better. That's why, they, that's why the author says that. And just this picture, when Jesus sat down and gave purification for sins in verse 3, the tense in the Greek there is third person aorist. And you're like, what does that matter about anything? And let me just say, it conveys tomorrow's certainty, certainty in a present action. So let me say that again in a different way. When it says he sat down, it says he sat down today, but tomorrow the fact that he is still sat down and it is certain, it will never, ever, 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 ever change. 
And so when Jesus gave himself up before Pilate on the cross, spiritually, he sat down in the, as the priest, the better priest, the true priest, and all these animal sacrifices and all the confessions that we do about where we fall short, which I do all the time, right? All those things is something that we should do, right? We should confess those things, but that actually doesn't save us. What saves us is that Jesus has sat down and has completed the work. And it is as certain tomorrow as it is today. And I'll say this. We talked about this with students as we broke up in the small groups last week. How many of us, and they said this yesterday too, which I'm like, okay, that's a word from the Lord, so I'm just going to repeat it, right? How many of us, when we sat down in the chairs, we checked the legs to make sure it would hold us? Anybody check the chair before you sat down in it? The students didn't on Wednesday. I usually don't. I didn't check the oil before I got in the car this morning. It started, right? It's super cold, but there you go. And it's funny. So what we're saying is by our action, by not checking, is that we have faith in chairs. We're chair faithers. It's true. I'm an oil faither, right? It, I'm, it's time for an oil change, but I haven't done it yet because it's too cold. I'm not doing it for the next three days, right? But there you go. When nobody checks the chair, but somehow we, we trust in faith blindly that the chair will support us. You see that, right? That's what chair faith is, isn't it? It's going to support us. It's going to hold us up. It's not going to let us fall. Jesus is a better priest than the chairs we sit in. Jesus is a better priest than the things that we think our lives have to have to run. And so when Jesus sat down, he sat down in the past it is certain today, and it will be certain tomorrow. And that's what the author is communicating. Meaning the, cert the certainty of Jesus' priestly ministry is not in question, is not in doubt. It never runs out of light. It never runs out of hope. It never runs out of its power. We get to enjoy it forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And so here's the beautiful part of Hebrews, and at least this point is that you and I get to enjoy the spiritual state that we will inherit in eternity one day, because that's what it means to live as a Christian, right? And live as a citizen, not of this planet, but of heaven, is that we enjoy an already but not fully yet state of living. But yet Jesus's priestly ministry ensures that. And its effect of removing sin and falling short and in guaranteeing our inheritance is never in doubt. It is the will that he executes. It is the trust that he executes, which leads us to truth number four. Jesus sits at the right hand of God because he completed his priestly ministry on the cross. He sits at the right hand. It says it right there. Sits not at the right hand. Obviously, he's sitting at the right hand of God. But I just love this. Here is the radiance of the glory of God. God's glory. Jesus is the exact image, mirror, radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature like the thumb print that we have all unique to us. Jesus is so perfect that he exudes and, and, and distributes God's thumbprint of his nature and then the author just says this. I just love it. It's like he's not sitting at the right hand. He sit, he's the, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, of which he radiates and imprints upon himself. I love that. I love that. And then having become as much superior to the angels, to the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. His name removes everything. It holds everything. 
It's what we prayed when we started this morning, right? His name includes the hope, joy, contentment, peace, patience, perseverance, and all the other things we never have enough of. But his supply is not limited. It's unlimited, which leads us to truth number four. Jesus sits at the right hand of God because he has completed his priestly ministry on the cross. And so I don't know about you. Some of us need to, like, um, take hold of his prophetic ministry and let him speak to us. Some of us need to allow him to be our king of our lives and lead us in a way that we haven't allowed him in a while. And then some of us need to assert his priestly ministry of our lives. And so that thing you've carried in or that thing you struggle with or that thing that you fall short of over and over again, you realize Jesus died for that and it's completed, right? It's done. And no amount of confession, which we should do, will ever change the fact that his work is already completed. Amen? And so as we hear the truth of God's word, we have an opportunity to be changed and respond And so what does it mean to have a spiritual covering? The band's going to come back up. In a spiritless world, it's this. We need to embrace Jesus' prophetic ministry in our lives in a new way. We need to embrace Jesus' kingly ministry in a new way. We need to embrace Jesus' priestly ministry in a new way. Which one do you need to embrace? Today. Tomorrow this year and how can you help someone embrace theirs you're not just here for yourself we're also here for one another right so I just want to end with this I've been listening to this song all week it's called Belovedness by Sarah Kroger anybody familiar with that song I know a couple of people are Um, it's on like my Apple Christian chill playlist there's like whatever you know it's it's fine it's usually not my jam but I've been been focused on this song and it's been on repeat and my kids are annoyed by it by now and that's fine because I don't really care what they think but I want to read the first verse and then the chorus and I want you this to wash over you before we sing and respond okay you've owned your fear and all your self-loathing You've owned the voices inside of your head. You've owned the shame and reproach of your failure. It's time to own your belovedness. Isn't that sweet? You've owned your past and how it's defined you. You've owned everything everybody else says. It's time to hear what your father has spoken. It's time to own your belovedness. And we know Jesus speaks, God speaks through Jesus definitively. Here's the chorus. And they're going to sing. Why don't you stand as I finish this part? Because I want each of you to hear this and concentrate on it. He says, you're mine. And I smiled when I made you. I find you beautiful in every way. My love for you is fierce and unending. I'll come to find you whatever it takes. My beloved. So Jesus, as we just embrace your ministry, and just those words that we are your beloved. And that's because how you divide, how you lead, and how you go before us on behalf of a holy God. God, you are our King and our Savior, and we are your beloved. 
And I think of another worship song where it says, and I don't know why this is because you're this good, but it says, we are your portion. Like that's the portion you really needed, but yet you took us anyway. But then this statement, you are our prize. So God, I just want to, I know it's cold and it's a new year and some of us are out of school and work tomorrow. And God, my prayer is that we would just revel because of who you are and what you've did and what you're doing, that we're your prize and you're our prize. So some of us need to hear that in a new way this morning. So God, I pray as we sing and we just in our seats, just reflect on where we are. Holy Spirit, would you do what you could do, only what you could do, which is to speak clearly in spite of anything else that has been sung or prayed or said this morning. So we thank you, King Jesus, that you are supreme. And may you continue to be so in our lives. It's in your name. Amen.